1: To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily
0: notifications. This is day 29. Today we will be reading book 8, chapters 4 through 6 in the Ascension edition of the book.
1: We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. If you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support.
0: Okay, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. Again, almost there, but there are a couple more stories of conversion to tell, so that way St. Augustine might be moved to a place of beggary before the Lord, asking for the grace of conversion, which arrives. Um, So we hear here of St. Anthony of the Desert, or I suppose it's helpful to hear tell of St. Anthony of the Desert because the story is going to be recounted, but we're going to hear how two men were affected by his story. So I figure we just tell the story a little bit. Basically, St. Anthony of the Desert lived in the latter half of the third century and then the former half of the fourth century. And you can Consider him the kind of founder of monasticism. Usually when we think about monasticism, we think about people living together. We refer to that as the cenobitic life. He founds like the kind of eremitic life, which is to say the life of hermits. So that's to say the monastic life of those who live by themselves sometimes in loosely configured communities, but regardless. And the way that it happened was that he was passing by a church. He heard the gospel proclaimed uh, from Matthew 19, which describes the rich young man who asks the Lord how to be righteous. The law is recounted. He says, I've done these things. And then the Lord proffers the invitation, if you would be perfect, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And St. Anthony is inspired by that call, moved by that call. He does sell all that he has. He entrusts the care of those in his charge, I think his sisters, uh, to some pious holy women in town, and then he goes to live in the desert. Uh, So this monastic call is something that in the early church is very precious because once Christianity is no longer persecuted, there's a desire for a new kind of intimacy and intensity with the Lord, and we see that expressed in the life of the monks. So monasticism is going to come to the West as inspired by these men who are living in the desert in various parts of Egypt and beyond. And so this is is at work in the background and this is part of the inspiration for St. Augustine. Great. All right, let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Four. Come, O Lord, and act. Stir us up and call us back. Kindle our hearts and draw us to you. Inflame our affection, and may our spirit be filled more and more with your sweetness. Let us now love. Let us make haste. See Song of Songs 1-4. Do not many return to you from a deeper hell of blindness than Victorinus did? Yes, and they come to you and are enlightened by you, receiving the light that gives those who receive it the power to become children of God, John 1.12. But if they are less well-known, even those who know them feel less joy at this. For when a host of people rejoice together, each individual feels more exuberant joy because they kindle and inflame one another. Likewise, those who are well-known influence more men to embrace your salvation and lead the way with many following them. Therefore, those who precede them rejoice greatly in them, because they do not rejoice solely in them. Let it never be the case that in your house the rich should be accepted before the poor or the noble before those of humble birth. For you have, by contrast, chosen those who are weak in the world, so as to shame the strong, choosing what is lowly and those who are despised in the world, indeed those things that are not, so that you might bring to nothing those that are. See 1 Corinthians 1, 27-28 and yet, even that least of your apostles, see 1 Corinthians fifteen nine, upon whose lips you pronounce these words, Paulus the proconsul, see Acts thirteen, after his pride was conquered through his warlike struggle, then placed himself under the easy yoke, see Matthew eleven twenty nine, of your Christ, thus becoming a humble subject of the great King, being pleased to change his name from Saul to Paul, in witness to such a great victory. For the enemy is more overcome in someone over whom he has a greater hold and by whom he holds on to a greater number of other people. But he has a greater hold upon the proud through their nobility, and through their authority they also exercise a greater hold upon others so then to the degree that men had felt esteem for victorinus's heart which was held by the devil as a kind of unassailable possession and for his tongue which had slain so many like a mighty and sharp weapon so too to an equal degree and in great abundance should your sons rejoice upon seeing that the king has bound the strong man see matthew 12:29 taking his vessels from him to be cleansed and suited to your honour see luke 11:22 thus becoming serviceable for the lord ready for any good work See Second 2 Timothy 2.21. 5. But when this man of yours, Simplician, told me the story about Victorinus, I was on fire to imitate him. And he had told the story precisely for this reason. And he likewise added how in the days of Emperor Julian, a law was promulgated forbidding Christians to teach the liberal arts and rhetoric. In obedience to this law, he preferred to forsake the verbose discourse of the schools rather than your word, by which you give eloquence to mute tongues. See Wisdom 10.21. Hearing this, I judged that even more than resolute in character, he was blessed, for he thus found an opportunity to serve only you. And this is what I was pining for, bound not by iron shackles placed on me by someone else, but rather by the iron of my own will. It was held by the enemy, thus chaining and binding me. My perverse will gave rise to my lust. And serving this lust, I established a habit, And since I did not resist this habit, a kind of necessity was born. Thus, link joined to link in what I have called a chain, enslaving me in harsh bondage. However, a new will began to exist in me, desiring to freely serve you and wishing to take joy in you, O God, in whom alone is found certain delight. But it could not yet overcome my former willfulness, which had only strengthened with age." Thus, two wills struggled within me, one new and spiritual and the other old and carnal, and through their discord, my soul was ravaged. Thus, through my own experience, I understood the words I had read, quote, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, Galatians 5:17. I myself was on both sides of this divide, though more so in what I approved in myself than in what I disapproved. However, now the latter was less myself, for I did not willingly embrace it, but rather endured it. And yet it was through me that habit had obtained this power of warring against me, for I had willingly come to the state where now I will not be. And who has any right to speak out against the just punishment that follows a sinner? Nor could I plead as I once did, saying that I still hesitated to scorn the world and serve you because I was not yet fully sure of that truth, for now it was sure for me. But still enslaved to the earth, I refused to fight under your banner, fearing to be freed from all encumbrances as much as I should have feared being weighed down by them. Thus, like a man who was asleep, I was pleasantly weighed down with the baggage of this present world. And when I would meditate upon you, my thoughts were like the struggle of a man who would like to awake, but overcome by heavy drowsiness, falls back asleep. No man wish to sleep forever, for in all men's sober judgment it is far better to be awake than asleep." Yet sluggish and weighed down in all his limbs, a man will most often wait to shake off his sleep, half displeased yet yielding to it with pleasure, even after it is time to rise. So too I was sure that it was much better for me to hand myself over to your charity than to my own disordered desire. However, although the first course of action seemed pleasant and was gaining mastery over me, the other still gave me pleasure and remained my master." Nor did I have any answer for you when you called out to me saying, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Ephesians 5.14. And when you showed me on all sides how your words were true, I was convinced by that truth and had nothing left to say but only soon, yes, very soon, just give me a little while longer. But very soon was still far away, and this little while longer stretched on for a long while. In vain I delighted in your law and my inmost self, but I saw in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, leading me captive to the law of sin that was in my members. See Romans 7, 22-23. For the law of sin is the force of habit, by which the mind is dragged and held even against its will. However, it deserves this, for it fell into this state willingly. Who then will deliver me, O wretch that I am, from this body of death, if not your grace, through Jesus Christ our Lord? See Romans 7, 24-25. 6. I will now declare and confess unto your name, O Lord, my helper and redeemer, see Psalm 1914, how you delivered me from the bonds of desire that bound me so tightly to carnal concupiscence and from slavery to worldly affairs. Filled with increasing anxiety, I continued along at my normal business, daily sighing to you. I was present in your church whenever I was free for this business, whose burdens were the source of my groans. Olypius was with me, now free from his third term in his affairs of law, now waiting to find someone to whom he might sell his counsel, as I sold rhetorical skill, if teaching can indeed impart it. And on account of our friendship, Nabridius had now agreed to teach under Veracundus, a grammarian who was a citizen in Milan, and a very intimate friend to us all. This man urgently desired and beseeched us to provide, on the basis of our friendship, the faithful assistance that he so greatly needed." Thus, Nebridius did not come to this labor looking for some advantage for himself, for he might have made much more of his learning if he had so willed, but rather as a most kind and gentle friend. He did not wish to fail to fulfill a just request raised by our friendship, but he did this very discreetly, avoiding recognition by men esteemed highly by the world. Thus did he afford the distraction of mind that comes from such affairs, for he desired to have freedom and leisure for as many hours as would be possible to seek, read, or hear something concerning wisdom. Behold, then, one day, when Abridius was absent, for some reason I cannot recall now, a man named Ponticianus came to see me and Olypius. He was a fellow African, now occupying a high office in the emperor's court. I do not know what he wanted from us, but we sat down to converse. It happened that, upon a table set up for a game, he saw there before us a book which he took and opened. He was surprised to find there the writings of the apostle Paul, for he had thought it was going to be one of the books with which I was wearying myself in my teaching work. He smiled at this and looked at me, expressing his joy and wonder that he unexpectedly found only this book here before my eyes, for he was a baptized Christian, a man who often in church bowed in frequent and prolonged prayers before you, our God. When I then told him that I spent much energy reading those scriptures, our conversation turned to Anthony, the Egyptian monk, whose name was held in high esteem among your servants, though we did not know anything about him. When Ponticianus discovered this fact, he expanded on the subject, telling us more, and he was amazed that we were unaware of such an eminent man. But we stood there amazed, hearing of your wonderful works which were attested to so fully in such recent times, indeed, nearly in our own days, wrought in the true faith and the Catholic Church. We all marveled, our group, at the greatness of Anthony's deeds, and Ponticianus at the fact that we had previously heard nothing about them. He then discussed the great hosts of men in the monasteries and their holy ways, which were a sweet-smelling offering to you, as well as the fruitful deserts in the wilderness, about which we knew nothing. And there was a monastery outside the city walls of Milan, cared for by Ambrose, and we did not know it. He continued speaking to us while we listened with bated breath. Thus he told us how one afternoon in Trier, when the Emperor was attending the games in the circus, he, Ponticianus and three other men, who were his companions, went out to talk in the gardens near the city walls. There, walking in pairs, one man went with him while the other two wandered off by themselves. Those men happened to find a small house where a group of your servants lived, who were poor in spirit, to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. see Matthew 5:3 And there they discovered a little book containing the life of Anthony. One of them began to read, admire, and feel his heart enkindled. And, as he read, he meditated upon the idea of taking up such a life, abandoning his worldly position so that he might serve you. Now, these two men were what were referred to as agents in public affairs. Then, suddenly, filled with holy love and sober shame, angry with himself, he looked at his friend and said, Tell me, I ask, what do we intend to attain by all of our labors? What are we aiming at? What is the purpose of our service? Can our hopes in court rise any higher than to become the emperor's favorites? And is not even this attainment brittle and perilous in so many ways? Yet think of how many perils we must pass through in order to reach something even more perilous. And when would we attain this standing? But if we wish to be a friend of God, we can become that at once. These were his words, and filled with the birth pangs of this new life, he again turned his eyes toward the book continued reading, and was inwardly transformed in that secret place where you see all things, and his mind was stripped of the world as was soon clear. For as he read, with his heart rising and falling like the waves of the sea, he stormed at himself for a time, and then discerned and determined that he would set out on a better course. Now that he was yours, he said to his friend, I have now broken loose from the hopes that we shared and am resolved to serve God. From this hour, here in this very place, I will begin to do this." The other man answered that he would cling to him in order to partake in so great a reward and service. Now they were yours, and they were building the tower with its necessary cost, forsaking all they had and following you. See Luke fourteen twenty-six 26-35. Then Ponticianus and the other man, who was walking with him elsewhere in the garden, came in search of the other two men, and finding them in the same place, they then advised them to return, seeing that the day was nearly over. But they responded by telling them about their resolution and purpose, and explained how they came to this settled decision, and they begged them at least not to bother them if they did not wish to join them. But although Ponticianus and his companion did not turn from their way, nonetheless they did lament, and, as he affirmed, piously congratulated them, asking for their prayers. Thus, with heart still lingering upon worldly things, they went off to the palace. However, the two men remained in the small house, their hearts fixed upon heaven, and both of the women whom they were to marry also, upon hearing of this, dedicated their virginity to you, O God. Okay, in this passage, so the chapters from chapter 8 that we just, nope, the chapters from book 8, let's go, Father Gregory, Uh, the chapters (laughs) that we just read. Uh, Are in the immediate lead up to the conversion of St. Augustine, and he's going to recount some more stories. He's going to give us a big prayer sequence as well, which is very beautiful. We hear him turn to the Lord and speak of haste and return and light and all of this rich, kind of converging imagery. And we hear the, the end of the story of Victorinus, which we talked about in our last episode. Um, so St. Augustine's kind of sorting out, it's not, it's not just because he's noble that it's good, but because it represents a certain humbling which testifies to the power of God and also the influence that this man can exercise over the Christian faithful who are present there for his conversion and beyond. But then the end of the story of Victorinus it shows what is at stake in Christian conversion because at the time I think there's some legislation in place where you can't exercise your office as a public orator if you yourself are Christian so he he determines to leave everything because he's not going to be permitted to continue in his post something that St Augustine is going to imitate in turn. So what about the radicality of this call and the human cost that it entails? Uh, what, what does that do to the individual who stands before the prospect of conversion? Is it something that that inspires? Is it something that intimidates? I don't know. What do you think, Father Jacob Bertrand?
1: I think both. Um I've not been part of like a big figures conversion, if that makes sense. You know, uh, I somebody who's a big public figure, though I've heard stories and know people who, you know, other priests who have, and uh, there's a sort of, yeah, I guess you, the options for dispositions is just sort of like, none of it matters anymore having encountered the Lord. So just, you know, but the other side or the other option or another option is, do i really want to give all that up do i really want to do that and i think that i imagine you had this in some way and i certainly did in discerning a religious vocation of not a conversion but a religious vocation of like do i want to give up what normal or other life would be and i remember at some point just thinking well like can i imagine victorinus and augustine well like what else could i do having encountered the lord you know but pursue him and then figure out the costs after or and ignore the costs after. And yeah, I think that that's the way Jesus works. <laughs> he, he calls and the rest doesn't matter. And the rest, not in the sense that it's not important, but the rest is sort of worked out in his providence. And even turning to that reality, and we see this process as Augustine's hearing the story of Victorinus and here's the story of St. Anthony, as Father Gregory explained, it's kind of like a priority question of like, what's coming first here? Is it Christ or is it other things that might be very important but weighing them in the scales like which way does it tip you know
0: yeah I was, I was recently in conversation with a man who was thinking of being received into the Catholic faith but it would entail a uh, great trial and great tribulation on his part specifically because he was very much involved with the Christian denomination ecclesial communion um, that he would be leaving or that he would be fulfilling I suppose and uh, he was trying to manage the kind of financial and social and political fallout by anticipation. And, you know, I gently encouraged him and it's his choice ultimately to make or his choice to respond to the grace of God uh, in the way most appropriate. But it's like, yeah, I mean, all you get is Jesus. Like that's the promise. All you get is Jesus. You don't get the promise of Jesus and everything else will work out you can say, with Dame Julian of Norwich, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. But that doesn't necessarily assure us that, like physically, you'll be in fit shape or emotionally, you'll be all homeostatic and tranquil, or psychologically, you'll be all integrated, you know. It will often mean devastation of a certain sort in all of those registers. But you get Jesus. And I think that the Christian conviction at the end of the day is that's enough. That's everything, you know, And apart from that, there is nothing. Um, so there's a kind of yeah, radicality at the heart of the Christian call.
1: Which, uh, yeah,
0: takes no prisoners.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, this reminds me or, or is a good point to bring up like Augustine's sort of extreme language about his bones being broken and all this because it's like, you know, there is a radicality to following Christ. And if it's just Christ and it's a sort of tearing away from everything else, I, you know, it's just Christ. And as you said, he's enough, but it's just a matter of us recognizing that and, and clinging to it.
0: Yeah. Okay, so as he continues his description of conversion, he's going to use some more rich imagery to describe how he is currently enslaved or bound or weighed down, and he'll use this chain of habit clinking along, and he'll describe his current state as a kind of sleep. Or you know, he makes reference to the war in his members. He appeals a lot to the text from Romans seven. Uh, you know, the things that I do not want to do, I do. The things that I do want to do, I do not do. And you know, the kind of divided self. And this is going to feature prominently. In the description, this idea that there's a new will and a new man that's been, you know, kind of called forth by the proclamation of the gospel, his recognition and reception of it, but that the old will, the old man is still present and that there's a struggle between them. And he's going to clarify all that that entails. But, you know, like, what do we do with, is, with this imagery? It sounds, again, kind of like a divided self, but might that signify a schizophrenic self or, you know, like, what are we describing in these terms?
1: Yeah, new here. And when we talk about the new old, new man, old man, new life in Christ, old life in sin, what you know, whatever the comparison might be, uh, you you kind of actually mentioned this in in talking about the person who was debating converting, and you, you mentioned you know fulfilling whatever denomination he was fulfilling it and entering the church, and that it's that same idea of fulfillment here. It's it's not a schizophrenia as you, I mean, sort of set up, not suggested, but set up, but a, a sense of fulfillment of what was old, incomplete, um you know, God by His grace, bringing to perfection, um healing and bringing to f- perfection. And if we just think in terms of Saint. Augustine's life, you know, for decades now he's been struggling, especially with this sin of lust. And turning from that, there's a newness of life. There's a new way of approaching relationships. There's a new way of approaching, yeah, women, there's a new way of of approaching even himself. and and that changes you. What you do, your habits change you. They 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 make you who you are. So when you take on these new habits, there's a newness of life. There's a, and I think at, at root here, there's a freedom from the sin and from the chains of those vicious habits to be free in Christ. So yeah, newness in those terms, for sure.
0: No, yeah. And he appeals, you know, I think it's a text from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he refers to the new man. And I think that that gets at the, well, he, also will quote this passage again from St. Paul's letters to speak of the newness of life that comes with the resurrection. And that gets picked up in the subsequent tradition. You'll see it like, especially in the Latin fathers, you know, novitas vitae. It's something that's, that's just like very powerful because while we might get used to it, while we might get accustomed to the language, it's not just like the old life with some slight adjustments. We're not tinkering. We're not like, you know, just managing. We're, we're being transformed. And that's the real promise with the life of grace and virtue and the gifts of the holy spirit that we are being transformed you know the old man is is wasting away is perishing all the day long but the new man right is being built up edified called forth all right so then we get to the the end of the passage from which we just read and this is where things are really set into motion. He, he's with Olypius and Abridius and Ponticianus comes. He sees St. Paul's letters on the table. He leads in with the story of Antony, which we, we recounted at the beginning of this episode in brief, and then of an encounter that he had in Trier, which I think is in modern-day Germany, but getting on towards the Low Countries, uh, where he's walking about. He and three other individuals, they pair off, and the two men, you know, to whom he is not party, they you know, have have the story of St. Anthony presented to them or recounted to them. I think they pick it up in a book and they're just cut to the quick. And so they determine at that juncture to live a comparable life, a, a kind of monastic life. And this is brought on by the description, you know, Ponticianus is saying, yeah, there's a monastery right here in Milan outside the city that St. Ambrose has the charge of. So it's all brought before the rise at once, that there is this possibility of a monastic life, which corresponds to their desire to live a common life in pursuit of the truth, and that there are saints who have had their lives transformed uh, by a radical call of the gospel, and that they have been drawn into this monastic life precisely so as to fulfill their vocation, to use terms that St. That Augustine does not, but which are, are kind of more natural to us to use. So here we are on the doorstep of conversion, and it's the conversion of St. Anthony, which prompts the conversion of these two men, which is now prompting the conversion of St. Augustine. What do you have to say about all these, you know, interconnections or these
1: relationships? It's the contagion of of grace, you know, It can't be contained in, in that kind of way. It's It's just another instance. You know, we've had the examples of other people in St. Augustine's life who have drawn him to Christ um, and that as a sort of as contemporaries in different ways, you know, whether that be his mother or St. Ambrose or alypius or whomever, you know, whomever it might be. And then you have these historical men who have also you know, who also bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And I think in some ways with the historical, with the saints, with the stories of others converting, you can see the the whole picture, you know, rather than just the sort of immediate, you can see the effect of conversion and um, the effect of Christ in one's life. So there's I guess more of a holistic or a whole view of like, this is what conversion and life in Christ does and what it looks like, what it costs, but also what it brings about. So it seems providential at this time in Augustine's life to have a sort of another moment of like resoluteness kind of put there for him.
0: Boom. Boom goes the dynamite, as said one college sports announcer, and as has been quoted many times since through the internet. So, we are getting excited. I hope you are getting excited because the time is drawing nigh. So, no know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics.